Welcome to Filled to Flourish with Luke and Lauren. Where emotional health takes a stage and your story matters. Hey everyone, we are so glad that you're here with us. Uh, we have a really, um, I feel like I say this a lot, but there's just, there's so many special things to share. So we really do have a really meaningful episode to share with you all today as we are um, holding space for our spouse's story. Mm, So important. It's so powerful and meaningful and such a beautiful way to love one another um, by holding space for our spouse's story. But it's also incredibly painful. Yeah. It sounds really cute, you know, but in, in doing it, in the lifetime of, of doing it, in theory, it's nice. Um, it is. Walking it out, it's kind of it's a it's a journey. Messy. Yeah, it's a messy, messy journey, and so we're gonna delve into that today, and we are gonna share um, a big part of our story that we are eager to share with you, our dear audience, um, and it will not be um, appropriate for kiddos. So probably in five, 10 minutes, um, it will switch to talking about that and you will want to have, um, there would not be little kids around. Yeah. It's a hard part of our story, but an important part of, um, our inability to hold each other's story. Yes. Hold space for each other's story. Um, in the beginning of our marriage and how, as we've learned how to do that, how healing has come out of that and intimacy yeah Yeah. and the importance of attachment. Mm -hmm. Um, So we we try to think about how to talk about holding space for your spouse's story. We feel like the best way to do it is, is to share um, parts of our story. Yeah. There's some vulnerability here, some risk, but Mm -hmm. uh, we feel like this is really um, the best way to do it. So I hope you guys learn a lot and it's valuable and, it's helpful. Yeah, me too. Um, when as we have been learning about this, um, this idea of us having a story, um, and this is a great follow up to our last episode, right? Yep. Um, make sure you check that out about you having a story and it mattering. Um, the The reality that our story is intended to be a blessing to us and to those that we connect with in life. Mm. But in um, actuality, our stories often are like a curse. And the the people who, um, who help us form our story, our parents or our guardians, those are those stories of theirs come together in in the raising of us. And there's this multiplication effect of story so that they're passing on the brokenness of their story to us. And then our story inevitably finds itself broken as well. Um, and without healing, the story will continue to be that of a curse instead of blessing. And we decide to get married. And um, instead of being able to come into marriage, a lot of us with this healthy, secure, robust um, attachment. We mm. come in madly in love a lot of the times, very much caring about our spouse, but having an underlying insecure attachment. And, and therefore having not having the ability to love your spouse well. Right. Regardless of 
the feelings of love and the care that you do have for them. If you have an insecure attachment, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to consistently and appropriately love them the way they need to be loved. I think that what you just said, the consistency is the important part. Because mm-hmm. not that with insecure attachment, you can't love people. Right. Um, yeah. Early on in our marriage, we loved each other. We felt love from each other. The The consistency of our ability to love well and then receive that love. Yes, totally. And then hindered. And when, you know, any conflict arises or any hot water comes, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's great. It's everyone can love their spouse on their honeymoon. Right. <laughs> like, woohoo, a week of fun and no responsibility, no pressure, no nothing, no loss, no grief, yeah. just pure ecstasy. Great. Whoop-de-doo. Anyone can do that. But it's after that when real life hits and all of our insecurities and um, broken places are tapped into, then how do we respond to this spouse that we adore? Yeah. Um, Because we've mentioned about attachment, like the big six of attachment. Again, I'll reiterate those of uh, being able to to attune, uh, to respond, to engage, to regulate your hard emotions, to handle other people's negative emotions, and then willingness to repair when there's a brokenness in your relationship. So your parents' responsibility is to be an example to you of how this happens mm-hmm. and then to train your brain that people will be there and um, be safe. Right. And just a reminder, this isn't just a modeling. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, children learn through, oh, I see them doing that. That must be the good way. I'll do that too. It's not just a cognitive thing that these big six, these needs of a child um, bring. They're also developing our neurological systems from infancy up. And so it's not just like, oh, I saw good examples of people who were generous and, um, you know, provided for me and things like that. It's, it's, it goes even beyond the modeling of good things to the actual, um, biology of how a brain is developed to be securely attached. Absolutely. And then if you're not, Show, if your brain has not been able to be wired appropriately, then you're not going to be able to do this f- for your spouse. Because right. this attunement, those big six don't end or don't begin just as a parent mm-hmm. um, or don't end when you get out of your house. Those are all about relationship. Mm-hmm. So within a marriage, you have to give the give and take these six things with, with a spouse. Um, that's how security is continued felt and grown. Yeah, definitely. But with marriage, what we're doing is we're merging two stories um, and all the people behind those stories into a new union. And um, that often, most often, I would say always, but maybe we'll leave room for a small percentage of people that this doesn't happen. Um, The merging of those two family stories together inevitably brings a tremendous amount of pain yeah. and grief. Yep. And within that marriage, when these big six are not present, someone hurts somebody, yeah. triggers their attachment. So they respond out of hurt, triggers the other person's attachment. And this, there's this vicious cycle of, of pain and hurt and reaffirming your insecure attachment, yep. pushing each other away. Which a lot of times then you resolve to maladaptive ways of of self-regulating, mm. of um, yes. 
of coping with life, of dealing with relationship, um, whether it's shutting down and isolating, yeah. um, addictions, just watching TV, playing video games, whatever it is. It, overperforming. Over, yeah, uh, workaholics, mm-hmm. um, whether that's at ministry or at work. We're, we become, we find ways of finding safety. Yeah. And however our brain has been wired to find it, we pursue that. Yep, definitely. Something I always say to Luke, I'm kind of um, an extreme person. <laughs> Would you say that's an accurate Let's statement? There's, there's some truth to that. <laughs> um, it's funny. I texted a friend the other day. Maybe she's listening. And I said um, something like, uh, go big or go home. And she, she said, that is such a Lauren statement <laughs> right there. If you're listening, you know who you are. But I, I do. I, I really always um, think like marriage should never work. There's just too many variables to make it fail Mm -hmm. and just flounder and cause way more pain than it may feel it's worth. I mean, it, it makes so much sense that the divorce rate is so high, and that the with the people who are still married the marital satisfaction is so low inside the christian church and outside like mm-hmm. this is just having a healthy securely attached marriage is way way not in your favor <laughs> is that is that how you'd say it like sure. the the yeah the odds are not not for you for you yeah. because there's so many ways our stories collide and instead of fitting together like a perfect perfect puzzle piece they're like oil and water yeah or just create massive fire yeah. just let's just set it's just set fire. Fire. <laughs> yeah it's like this is not supposed to work and i say that to luke a lot not like in a fight but right. after we realized yeah like wow this this just it should never work and really that comes down to two insecurely attached people mm-hmm. when two insecurely attached people marry which is us raise your hands <laughs> that's totally us there's so much that goes wrong. Yeah. And could go wrong and will go wrong. Right. That it's a shock, it works. And, and yet, sorry. No, go ahead. Just that we believe. It's not like that we're against marriage by saying that. We're just no. being realistic to say, to make this work, there's a lot that needs to go right and that needs to be acknowledged and healed. You know, and there's, it's so much harder. There's so much work has to go into it to make a successful marriage, an enjoyable marriage. It it doesn't happen by osmosis or by passively going through relationship. There's a pursuit of each other. There's a pursuit of of each other's story. And of our own stories. Of our own story um, so that we can have space for for our spouse's story. Um, So the effort and the hardness that you have to go that um, you have to navigate navigate yes through a relationship uh, to make a marriage uh, fulfilling and and beneficial is it's just a lot <laughs> it's a lot and i want to just um remind you all i think we talked about this last episode that um if you're unable to sit in the hardness of someone else's story like your spouse Mm, yes. It's it should be a sign to you that you've been unable to do that in large part for your own story, because we really cannot affirm other people's suffering and brokenness when we haven't affirmed our own. Mm. 
Yes. That's a great segue to holding space to your spouse's story. And so that's going to lead us into um, our marriage. Yeah. Um, Of what, in our marriage, what stopped us from holding space for each other's story? Um, What was parts of our story? Mm -hmm. Um, And many of you may not be able to relate directly with our story, but I want you to hear our story and say, okay, how, how does this apply to our, our, my relationship? How does this reply to my attachment? Yeah. Um, and really this is just like the, the, the story and the specifics are like the leaves and branches of a tree. Mm-hmm. Whereas what's really there is the roots is what, um, the, the brokenness of insecure attachment and trauma that leads to the the branches and the leaves turning the way they do. Mm-hmm. So if you think of our attachment being the foundation, the roots of our tree, and the poorly attached child then develops these unhealthy um, roots, which turns into an unhealthy tree. And so we're going to actually so dive it produces into unhealthy fruit, right? Yes, for sure. Um, the specifics of what was our unhealthy, um, some of our unhealthy leaves and fruit of the tree but really the what it is underneath is the insecure attachment and trauma yep um so growing up in as a kid um i had parents that loved me but that struggled to create a healthy attachment um they have their own story. They have their own pain. Mm. Um, and that created um, an environment that was not safe. Yeah. And so as I grew up in this hostile environment, in this un- un- um, unstable environment, mm-hmm. um, I learned how to regulate myself. Um, there was a lot of, now looking back on it, I see a lot of anxiety and depression, Definitely, which I did not have language for, um, until about like four years ago. Yeah. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety and depression, a lot of loneliness, um, a lot of questions that I didn't feel safe to ask. Mm. And so within that, um, Having these questions created more instability. Right. Just the, the not knowing and not knowing who to go to. Right. Um, so ultimately, as I was um, in my teenage years, um, as any boy has questions, he's becoming sexual. Um, he's noticing girls for a little bit more. But then he starts noticing also girls in movies and pictures and uh, magazines and didn't know what was going on and didn't know like the biggest question I had was like I grew up as a as a Christian so a question was my mind was that was always told me do not lust but no one ever explained like what does it mean to lust and it was like well don't want what's not yours I'm like Okay, what does that mean? So I had these questions, and I didn't know what that meant. Um, 
So in that um, un- unsureness, I noticed magazines and I'd see pretty girls. And my looking back at it, I now know that my brain was finding some mm. um, regulation. Yeah. And my brain started being wired and saying, whenever you're you're depressed, mm. whenever you're anxious, when you feel this instability, this insecurity, mm-hmm. I will stabilize you. Yeah. Um, but I was still living at home. It was um, kind of, I feel kind of old, but it was like before internet was really, <laughs> really, <laughs> you are uh, old. <laughs> really big. So like, I didn't have a lot of access of yeah. pornographic material. Yeah. But I would find find ways um, of and, and it started out with like just like um, magazines of girls dressed, but they were pretty. Then it was um, and just kind of progressed from there while at home wasn't often um, which was one of the things I said, okay, it's not often. Mm-hmm. So that said, okay, so it must be, it's not, a, not bad. Mm-hmm. There was also some lines that I wasn't crossing. And so I was like, so it must be, I'm not lusting mm-hmm. because I'm not crossing these lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, and it helped me get through my teenage years. Apparently <laughs> I got through. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it, like, peaked his head up it wasn't out of control uh, per, per se mm-hmm. um but it was there was a draw there. but there was a draw yeah, yeah. and I, I mean looking back on it, it was not out of control it was more because out of lack of opportunity rather than mm-hmm. con- like uh, my control which children now don't have that same situation they have right ample opportunity yep. which is just a little side note yeah and and it definitely it had a strong draw and um but there's still this inner turmoil of is this okay is this mm-hmm. normal and I, having nobody to talk about it yeah i feel like i had nobody to talk to sure. um and then as i graduated from high school i went off to college and that's where the monster started growing yeah um i remember before going to college even thinking like having that turmoil of like mm. there's gonna be freedom and excited mm-hmm. but also like but freedom is was also scary, scary. like what what yeah. is this going to mean can i will i be able to control quote unquote control it mm. um and and i wasn't i went off to college excited i had i thought i was going to college with some friends yeah um but come to find out the college experience was harder for me than I expected. Mm. Um, we were dating at the time. Yes, we were. Um, and we had a great relationship. Mm-hmm. But I was away from you. And that anxiety started growing. Yeah. Um, realizing like, like there's social anxiety. No words for all of that I had no idea what was going how on. to navigate that and the pit in your stomach that that made you feel on a regular basis like daily yeah. of um not feeling like i fit in 
um, not feeling like I had like that stability, like that, yeah. that secure, that insecure attachment followed me to college. Right. It didn't stay, it didn't at, stay home. at home. And it wasn't like only in marriage. It was now I'm in this dorm with 150 guys and I'm still looking, do I belong? Yeah. And when I looked around looking for somebody looking for me, I didn't find anybody. That's right. And, and then I still had it like, and I was looking at like, I was dating you, but there was girls that were like, do I belong? So there was just that insecurity of, will you give me some feedback mm. that I'm I'm okay? Yeah. Like, I don't want to date you. I don't want any of that. But is there any, am I okay? Yeah. Do I have value? Yeah. Um. And I knew I was dating you, so I didn't pursue that. Yeah. So there was like... So I'm not getting that feedback that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. um, not getting feedback from anybody that I'm okay. Mm. There's this anxiety that's growing into me as I, I also feel like I'm stupid because I, at the time I didn't know I had ADD. Right. So my friends that I did go to school with, they're all very, like school came easy to them. Yeah. They were straight A students in high school Didn't and in college. Study a lot. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah. And so um, I'm feeling stupid. I'm feeling like I don't belong. Mm. Um, I'm missing you. Yeah. Um, and so it's this perfect storm. And would you say that even though um, home was a um, had some toxic stress and it didn't didn't always give you that secure attached, securely attached um, feeling mm -hmm. and all that comes with that, it still was what you knew. It was still familiar. Right. Yeah. It was still a, a place of. Um, belonging in a, a not belonging but belonging <laughs> i knew my role there right you were part of the system and you knew your role and that's not like you were prepared to exit that system and be thrown in as an 18 year old uh -huh. into i mean kids the transitions that kids have to make without any understanding of what's going on is heartbreaking yeah i did not know I did not have uh, the preparation I needed to know what was going, what college was going to behold. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I didn't know I had a story. I didn't know I like. I didn't know I had ADD. I didn't know I had anxiety. I didn't know I had depression. And through my teenage years, I was I was suicidal. Like I never tried to commit suicide, but I did not want to live. Yeah, there was this a lot of anger, a lot of angst. Like just, I lived most of my life dysregulated. Yeah, you were either hyper or, or hypo. hypo. You you were in the four, five, six range. Very often at all. Yeah. Um, and so my own regulation was like this time when I would pursue these magazines or this time where I played sports. Yeah. And I excelled in sports. So that was my like that was my regulation. Yep. People that was my identity. People affirmed it. When I went to college, there was just I had no tools to regulate. Mm -mm. I did play a little sports there. But like an off season, I had I had a lot of free time. Yeah, um, did not have a place to belong, and didn't feel like I was smart. And so, but I did have a computer, mm. and it started out very slow, naive. Mm -hmm. But there was regulation there. Yeah, and, and this this false sense of connection that you weren't receiving. Right. And now I look back on it and I see, like, I know the psychology be behind it and mm -hmm. everything. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. Yeah. We have plans of talking about this more, but just the way our brain 
interpret people or an image in a magazine or image on a computer screen is the same. Mm. There's, it's called mirror neurons. And so if you smile at me, my brain interprets it and releases chemicals and says, this is nice. Mm -hmm. If a girl on a screen smiles at me, it actually responds the same way and says, she cares about me mm. and, re and releases chemicals and, mm -hmm. and says, this is good. Yeah. I'm accepted. Yeah. And so my brain remembered my teenage years of, even though it wasn't consistent, it was enough yeah. to say, this is what you need yeah. to regulate. This is what you should do now. Yeah. And it's, by the way, I'm here whenever I, whenever you need me. Mm. And it created a monster. Yeah. That. I went to to regulate me yeah. on a regular basis, but I was still there were still lines I didn't cross. Right, and so I was like, I'm okay yeah. as long as I don't cross these lines. I'm not lusting, or mm -hmm. I'm I'm safe, or I'm still I'm still okay. Yeah, and there would be times where I believe that. Sure, and then there'd be times on my floor crying mm. and asking God to help me and repenting. There was like small signs of like. I remember one time we had a guy's meeting of the dorm and we were talking about um, accountability material. And my RD said, like, if anybody's interested in this, let me know. So I went back to all, everybody was there. So I went back with my friends, like, oh man, that sounds like an interesting thing. That could be helpful. Nobody knew my struggle. Yeah. But I'm like, that sounds like that could be really at least safe. Because mm. I wanted somebody to see me. I wanted somebody to know. Yeah. My, all, all my friends looked at me and said, I don't have that problem. <laughs> And I was like, it was just like another thing saying, I don't belong. Yeah. And I'm, you're alone. I'm, I'm broken. I'm alone. I can't talk about this. Yeah. Mm. And so it continued to grow. Yeah. It continued to grow. Why don't you share that that story of um, when someone missed mm -hmm. that could have been such a point of connection and yeah. really seeing you and it was just totally missed that time in the dorm. Yeah. Yeah. This was um, another like you said, crying out for help. There was a time where I was I was laying face down on the ground. I didn't like Bible says prostrate, so I don't know what that means, but <laughs> I'm desperate. And yeah. I was just laying face down on the ground, just crying, asking God for help, for healing, for somebody to notice me, somebody safe to talk to. And just crying and talking and a guy knocked or walked into my room. I knew him, but we weren't close. Mm -hmm. He saw I was crying, and so he came in and closed the door. And he's like, what's going on? And he's the first person I told about my struggle. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, he's a peer, so he didn't know what to say. But he listened, and he prayed with me, and I felt better. He tried to encourage me, and he left, and never said anything again to me um, mm. never asked never such a mess yeah and it i don't remember i remember it hurting like yeah. and feeling alone again but i just felt like it was just like a confirmation i'm alone yeah my of course my avoidant anxiously avoidant attachment of you're in on us alone. Yeah. You can, but just keep white knuckling it. Mm -hmm. I just try harder. Um, I, I remember putting Bible verses around my computer. <laughs> I remember like just 
so many white knuckling behavioral mm-hmm. modification yeah that i tried yeah and because anytime i got dysregulated yeah i still didn't have tools you still didn't have tools i look back at it now and i know it's like okay i'm trying to regulate i'm trying to regulate myself but with no tools to regulate right you're just saying you're okay you're okay right. you're okay and that's osmosis, not that, how humans work it didn't work yeah um so actually um this man right here is um one of the most honorable and brave that you'll meet because he we were engaged in college and he told me he needed to talk so we drove this is when we were engaged right mm-hmm. we drove to a park um actually we talked in the car first time in the car yeah and he took a good old <laughs> 20 minutes of <sighs> ringing it with <laughs> Raining it in? No, like building up the. Wow, well, I see courage. my idiom thing. Ringing, ringing his hands, like oh. he just couldn't. He was like sweating and just, um, he was really distraught. He didn't want to tell me, but he knew it was the right thing to do. And so, I'm like, not sure if he's gonna break up with me. I'm not sure if I did. I didn't know. I had no idea. Definitely weren't prepared for this. Um, I definitely wasn't prepared for this. No. Um, and so he told me that he struggles with this and that I he thought it was right for me to have a choice to enter into marriage with him. And I needed to know this before I made that choice, which really was well beyond where you were at in life of wisdom, <laughs> like to give me the ability to consent to that. Um, instead of it being a secret uh, thing that you just didn't let me find out until, you know, years into the marriage, um, you knew it was best for me to know. And it was incredibly hard to hear. Incredibly hard to say. Um, yeah, that was a that was a hard day for us. Mm-hmm. And I think that we assumed, like most people do, really, that this um, these types of behaviors um, – pornography addiction, sex addiction, anything in this category really, that it has to do with um, sexual desire mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah. And so we just thought, well, <clears throat> we weren't having sex. Um, we waited until we were married. And so we just thought, well, we just he just is a man who <laughs> needs to have sex. Once and we start having sex, this he, will go away. Yeah. He'll he'll feel he won't feel the need to to do this. And so we both kind of we had a good conversation and you were, showed me a lot of grace and understanding. Yeah, did I? I don't remember. You did. It, you were very compassionate, but I think you were also naive. Super naive. And thinking that now that I told you that this was going to kind of go away also. Right. Because I didn't understand the psychology behind addiction. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that this wasn't about sex. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was going to take your your heart and your mind years to heal from the trauma of an insecure attachment. and everything that led you to be prime a prime candidate to have an addiction like this develop and so i kind of like in that day i held space for your story you absolutely did but it's not just hearing your spouse's story it's walking with them walking that story out into what it looks like for that person to find the understanding and awareness of their inner world and to be able to grieve and walk towards healing in the pain and traumas they've experienced so that i think if someone would have told me right there on that day 
Lauren, this is what it's going to look like. And it's going to be one of the hardest things you ever do. I would have been a lot more afraid. Entering into marriage. Yeah, I really would have. Yep. I was definitely naive. And about, I don't remember exactly, but maybe two, three weeks later, you asked the question I was hoping you would never ask. Mm. You said, so your struggle with pornography, how's it going? Mm-hmm. And I naively just answered, well, you know, it's hard, but I'm struggling and I have good days and bad days. And that space was no longer there. <laughs> like, I, what? Yeah. You were, you were, you were angry. You were hurt. Yeah. You felt betrayed. You were betrayed. Yeah. And I thought at that point, I was like, okay, she's going to break up with me. Mm-hmm. Like this ring is, that ring is coming off her finger and coming at my head here soon. Yeah. And we had, it was a long, there was a lot of quiet that day mm-hmm. um, I was scared and looking back at that the way you responded triggered my attachment and so okay she's not she's no longer safe yep and me telling you I'm still struggling triggered your attachment and said I'm no longer I'm not good enough for him yeah nothing I do is good enough for him and initially you missed the first point the first trigger you telling me that triggered my attachment yeah so that first that the answer to the question that i needed you to answer a different way to tell my body that i was safe Mm -hmm. you couldn't answer that way because you you were committed to honesty so um that was the first point so then my response out of my insecure attachment was hurt Hurt. and anger which isn't wrong but um i don't know how aggressively i responded that time there was definitely times where there was a lot of aggression and rage really um and then yeah so it was back and forth like four or five times in that one instance so that was the start of our journey yeah of not knowing how to handle this addiction yeah Uh, we decided to enter into marriage we did so glad we did yes but again, very naive. Mm-hmm. First year of marriage, the again the struggle went underground. But mm. that's again lack of opportunity, mm. not a change of heart or new tools. Yeah. Because on our second year, we moved out of our city to another state. Yes. Which was we're completely on our own. You didn't know how to do any of the things that the man <laughs> of the house needed to do. I didn't know how to do anything. We found out we were pregnant a month before we moved down there. We were yep. twenty and twenty-one, and we talk about being um, challenged yeah. and being stretched beyond your limits. We were, and so those defaults that your brain said, "This is how you regulate. This mm-hmm. is how you get back to the middle and to being okay." And that year, that first year of marriage, I really focused on prayer, reading my Bible, and I did it almost every day. Mm. When we moved out of state, that shifted, and I felt like I didn't know how to connect with God anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was attachment. Mm. Yeah. And nothing felt safe. Yeah. Like you said, I didn't know how to be the man of the house. I didn't know how to pay bills. I didn't know how to turn on electricity. I didn't know how to turn on the water. 
I didn't know anything. We lived in this crappy 1980s trailer that was falling apart. <laughs> but it was only 100 bucks a month. It was the married student housing on our campus, and it was the way we survived yeah. financially. But it was a piece of junk. So it's a lot of stresses that came from that. So much stress and so much um, uh, that we needed each other, but that we just couldn't give because we ourselves were so... Dysregulated constantly. Yeah. Yep. And so the addiction came back. Mm-hmm. We're not coming back, but appeared again. Yeah. And that started, again, several years of conversations. Yeah. Conversations I didn't look forward to. Mm. Luke, how you doing? And me trying to be honest, saying I'm not doing well, or I struggled, or I'm... I was always pretty vague. Mm-hmm. And that was attachment, mm-hmm. not wanting to be rejected, not knowing how to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, being afraid of if I was too vulnerable, that would the idea of if she knew me, mm-hmm. she would reject me. Yeah, there's no way she can know all of me and still love me. Yeah, and so that was a belief I want I believe for so long, but again, we couldn't hold space for each other's story. Mm-hmm. My addiction triggered your attachment. Mm-hmm. Your attachment response. Mm-hmm. It triggered my attachment of saying I'm not good enough yeah. and you're not safe. Yeah. And so we still I still had no tools to regulate myself. Yeah. Because I couldn't go to you to regulate me because you were not safe, is what my brain said. Yeah. You were safe. You loved me. But my attachment, I couldn't receive your love. Yes. And that's the avoidantly attached part. Yeah. For all of you out there who wonder what your attachment style is, when it is excruciatingly hard to receive and believe the love that someone is consistently showing you. And you That's showed consistently. Usually avoiding attachment, right? Yeah. Oh. And and we had a good sex life. We we're mm-hmm. having sex on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And we weren't having sex to try to stop the addiction. We no. just we had a good healthy sex life. Yeah. And so reiterate like it's not about sex. Yeah. It's not about, well, if you just gave him more sex, oh, he wouldn't gosh. he would be faithful to you or it is not We a hundred percent reject that yes, that mentality. That's a, that's a lie. Yep. It was my responsibility to do story work. Yeah. But I had nobody <laughs> to tell me to do story work. Right. All you saw and read about and heard and were advised was behavior modification, yes. stuff on the very top. But again, if the branch anal- the tree analogy, it wasn't the leaves issue it was at the roots so if you keep addressing the leaves and the fruit you're not gonna address the problem and we got a lot of bad advice of saying lauren this isn't your problem just let him handle it let him talk to his guy friends would make me so mad and let him talk deal with it with god you just need to trust god to change his heart yep and i knew in my bones that this would permanently affect our intimacy and our closeness if we if we did not seek healing and restoration as a couple together. I knew this wasn't a him thing. This was a us. Mm-hmm. And that if we if if I was just on the sidelines um cheerleading power of a praying wife. <laughs> like no, I no. knew it. And I don't know how I knew that besides the spirit of God, because I wasn't seeing that modeled. But I no. knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that that would ultimately lead to his demise. And that was the thing that saved our marriage and saved me, was Mm -hmm. the fact that you fought for honesty. Yeah. 
he fought to know me. Mm. Even when I couldn't be honest and say, come to you and say, babe, I just, I just slept. Mm -hmm. You would ask me, how are you doing? And I would tell you. And you got this sixth sense of knowing I when, when I slept yeah. or I when I looked. I feel like it was a gift. Or when I chose it. A curse and a gift. Yeah. But um, I did. It was weird. And you would ask that question knowing the answer. Yeah. I, I want to back up a little bit. A couple of years before no. that point, even I remember one time you came to me. I think you were still an undergrad, and we sat on the bed, and you said, "Babe, I really think it's an addiction." Mm. Do you remember what I, I said? I know you said you said I don't think so. Yes. So this is a place, an opportunity where I had the the chance to hold space for Luke's story, and for the the slow peeling back of the layers that was happening in his heart where he was recognizing something he really needed to reconcile, recognize that this was out of his control yeah. at this point, not in the sense that he didn't have choice, but it was beyond um, a habit. Yeah. It was a brain-based addiction that had developed and he had the clarity to begin to see that. And I, that, that word, um, I grew up with a, a, alcoholic father who who did become sober um but i knew about addiction and that word terrified yeah. me and i could not hold space for the truth of it for the potential of it and i tried to talk you out of that and try yeah. to prove to you like all the months that you had you know we would call it freedom or yeah. whatever where you didn't where you it's because it wasn't a daily thing it wasn't a weekly thing sometimes right. so we would i just tried to convince you that yeah. there wasn't you didn't attune you didn't attune and you couldn't regulate yourself yes with that information right it was too terrifying and so we didn't approach it from an addiction standpoint. We just kept for a on while, yeah. going at it for a behavioral modification. Yeah. Put filters on our computer. Yeah. When okay. smartphones came out on our on my phone. Yeah. Accountability partners, all of those things. And even the accountability partners was an attachment issue because mm. I never felt like they accepted me. Mm. Like even when I was being honest with them, there was still like I wasn't accepted. It was yeah. it was like um. I'm there to check the boxes, yep. but there wasn't an um, emotional engagement. Yeah, I wasn't an emotionally healthy person, but I was like, this doesn't feel right. Mm. And so I never felt safe in those relationships yep. because I was approaching the behavior and not the roots. Right, right. And so there was, like we said, there's seasons where it was more intense mm -hmm. and there's seasons where it wasn't as intense. Yeah. And where I didn't hold space for your story mm. is I look, I now understand like with an anxious attachment, you wanted me to be, you always asked me, if you mess up, just tell me. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as almost like an accountability, like a judge. Yeah. Like, and what, but what you were saying is put my attach, put my attachment to rest, please. Yes. My insecure attachment, just let, give it ease. Yeah. You we're going day in, day out saying, am I okay? Yeah. Am I secure? Is my is this relationship, am I good enough in this relationship? Mm -hmm. Am I safe in this relationship? Am I secure in this relationship? And every day I didn't either ease that. Yeah. Was means you were dysregulated. Mm. And I didn't hold space for that. I couldn't regulate myself and say, 
her attachment needs are important. Yeah. My safety is important. It was survival. Yeah. It was completely emotional survival. Yeah. Because if I am honest with her, she's going to reject me. Yeah. And it didn't matter how many times you loved me. Said it. Said said it. Yeah. Even how many times we had these conversations and you got mad at me and then we came around and said, babe, I love you. Yeah. And we worked through it and we started on together again. Yeah. When I slept, when I chose wrong, when I gave in to my regulation and gave in to my dysregulation. Yeah. Instantly it was survival. And I was like, I need to find safety. Yeah. Which made it cyclical again. Very much so. Because then I was dysregulated. Yeah. And I didn't have this insight in the moment of regulation. No. I didn't feel dysregulated. But as I started, I didn't have words for story. But I was still very introspective. Very much so. Like in throughout this whole time, I'm still battling. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out, okay, what are the patterns? Right. Why um, did I why did I do that? What was what was I thinking beforehand? What was I feeling? What, he was so introspective. And so I would find ways, I would find success in like, okay during this time of the day or during this part of the semester, like, yeah. I would find ways of these are triggers yep. and I need to be more aware, but we still were triggering each other in yeah. the midst of this. I think it's important to explain um, what happens in a lot of spouses. We'll say wives here, but this could absolutely be um, the wife is the addict and the spouse, the husband isn't. But yeah. um, what happens in a lot of these spouses who are married to someone with some type of sex mm. addiction and what develops oftentimes. And we saw this happening. And I, when we realized, when we had this language, I think it was so important for me to understand and for you to advocate for yourself. Most spouses who have a, a spouse who is a sex addict, um, they develop PTSD or symptoms of PTSD. Yeah. Because of the, the unpredictability, yeah. the lack of security, the flashbacks of the constant betrayals living in hypervigilance the hypervigilance trying to catch the cues trying to maintain safety at all costs because you're trying to find those being hypervigilant is helping you regulate yeah because you're assessing your um, environment saying where can i find safety yeah and so we i mean you definitely had those symptoms yeah um and and that made it worse the more the longer i kept on having this addiction yeah major ptsd uh, um, worse yeah and then as that happened i started being more deceitful mm. i started i would lie because it wasn't like a lie of like i'm going to tell my wife a lie yeah it's, i'm going to twist the twist the truth <laughs> yeah or manipulate the truth yeah so that i'm telling the truth but with the little truth possible yeah and again that was survival but you your gut was saying this, what you're saying to me isn't true. I yeah. know it, yeah. but you're telling me it's true. So you're making me feel crazy, right? which is causing the PTSD to be worse. Yeah. So now I, my, I can't even find stability in my own gut. Yeah. Cause you're telling me my gut is crazy. So it's a form of gaslighting. Yeah, um, and absolutely. like Luke saying, like, this is what uh, he's doing, not out of a malicious spirit, but out of survival, mm-hmm. knowing I can't make it worse for her. I already did this, but I need to not show it 
bring it to light because it will cause more pain for her and I will be so unsafe and I will feel so out of dysregulated. So this is what I have to do to survive. Like deceit is usually, it's usually not a um, malicious, nefarious. It doesn't have to be malicious. It doesn't have to be. That's what, yeah, that's what I should say. But it's, it's a survival skill and it's extremely damaging. I'm not saying the impact isn't super damaging because that's exactly what it did. But if it's less damaging, it's not, you're not saying it's less damaging. Um, It's very damaging. It's very damaging. Even though the motive wasn't to hurt. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. That's definitely what happened in my body. I would, I would experience this, this clash of reality. I know that something is not right here yet. He is assuring me with his words that it is, but my body language and my senses are picking up something different. Mm -hmm. And so that would create just, it would, tenfold of disconnection between us um, that the actual action didn't even create on its own, Mm -hmm. but the, but the protection of the action created so much more pain. And uh, alongside of that, you would ask me a question and my, there was a guttural response Mm -hmm. that had some truth in it. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even have awareness of, of other truth. Because my body, my frontal lobe goes off. Yes, definitely. Like so often my frontal lobe during those conversations were off and I was in that fight, flight, or freeze, or fawn, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about fawn in the future, response. And so it might not be hours later that I've realized, wait, I did lie. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, I don't want to bring this back up though. Yeah. Like we just had a two-hour conversation and if I tell her this part, then she'll be mad at me again. Yeah. And so there's like a survival of... I kind of told her this. She kind of got the gist. So maybe I'll just let go. Let's let's move on. Yeah. Um, but then you'd be tortured by the thought for like days on end. Right. Which until was until you finally just told me. I'd be like, oh my gosh, why didn't you just tell me and not torture yourself? Yeah. And so some kind of OCD tendency started creating very in, much so in me. Yeah. Of wanting to be truthful, but having that angst of dysregulation, insecure attachment, and so. As Lauren, as we started becoming healthier, yeah, Lauren continued, she always pursued me. She mm-hmm. always pursued intimacy, connection, and she always preached, Luke, you need to be honest with me because this is going to affect our intimacy. And sometimes it wasn't that calmly and, and nicely said, but Mm-mm. the message was like, this is what I'm fighting for us. Yep. And her pursuit was actually one of the things that changed me mm. was... And actually, uh, me being a Christian, she also opened up my eyes to like grace, mm. the idea of grace. Um, I didn't understand grace until I saw it within Lauren. And it wasn't grace as like, I forgive you, we're going to move on. It's, I love you and I'm going to keep you accountable. Mm. And there's going to be consequences for your choices, but I'm going to love you despite that. And we're I'm going to be here for you. I'm for us. Yeah. But that means keeping you accountable. That means advocating for myself. Yeah. And in that, I started seeing grace. Mm-hmm. And then I started under experiencing it as God or my father giving me grace. And so under- that started transforming my relationship with God, which started healing my attachment. It did slowly. It's very slowly. I started I started seeing God not as a judgmental tyrant. tyrannical tyrannical dictator yeah but as a father that wanted that could accept me Mm, that wanted to sit with me 
wanted to love me and wanted to heal me. Yeah. Um, and he actually told you. And I was reading a book. <laughs> if anybody's out there struggling with a sexual addiction, I encourage you to read the book Surfing for God and you're a Christian. Um, Surfing for God. Because it talks about that it's not a sex thing. It really is a relational mm-hmm. intimacy thing that you're really ser- seeking fullness and wholeness in yeah. God. I was reading it one day. And I was reading it. I was processing some things. I was taking a shower and God said, I'm going to heal you from this. It's going to take time, but I'm going to bring healing. I remember getting out of the shower and just coming to you. And I'm like, <laughs> God just told me he's going to heal me from, from this addiction. And, and, it was, and it was a promise that he kept. Yep. He kept that by continually walking us through the healing process. Because we had no idea what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing. But we continued to hold space. Again, didn't have that language. Yeah. But we just continued to hold space. And one of the ways we did that is we knew that I didn't like bringing up the conversation. (laughs) And we knew that it wasn't good for you to have to keep on asking the question. Yeah. And putting the pressure on you. Yeah. To keep me me honest. Yeah. And so we started at one point just saying, why does this, why can't this just be a conversation that we have? Mm-hmm. As we started learning more about the addiction, we didn't know really about attachment, but we knew it wasn't about sex. Yeah. We knew that I didn't want it. Right. That I hated this part. And there was, there's times where, again, I was suicidal, mm-hmm. just wanting to like, it would be better for me to just kill myself and be done with this addiction and save you from this pain and not be, not be a, a dad that carries mm-hmm. this into my kids. Cause yeah. I was like, I have to find answers because I want to have answers for my kids when they are teenagers mm-hmm. and for their younger years. I was like, I don't have answers. Yeah. I'm a failure. Like I just, I'm not going to be able to overcome this. Yeah. Um, there was so much shame, so much guilt. You started giving words to that and affirming that saying like, I know you don't, this isn't who you are. Yeah. I was like a, a supernatural grace to see your heart mm-hmm. beyond the behavior to see your um, your agony yep. and your I, I I believed you. It was like I didn't trust. I knew I needed to not trust your actions yet yeah. because wasn't, it wasn't ready. I, I there, wasn't trustworthy. Right, they weren't trustworthy yet. But I knew your heart could yeah. be trustworthy, and yep. I kept telling you, like, I trust your heart in yep. this. Tell me your heart. I want to know your heart. And you trusted me enough to start sharing that, your heart. That was a key switch i think within me is you starting to set you saying like i trust your heart and that was like mm-hmm. that was the attunement the response the engagement the big six you're able to regulate yourself and say i can separate your behaviors from the man yes from who you are and that started giving helping me see that i'm more than just this addiction or mm-hmm. these behaviors yeah because i felt worthless i didn't have good self-worth i still didn't i didn't love myself yeah and so, which was all wrapped into why it was still a problem. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of held on to your love, mm. like I'm. Maybe I am worthy of love, and I'm going to trust that if she can love me, maybe I'm lovable. It's really beautiful. <laughs> absolutely was and is, but we started having conversations saying this doesn't have to be a shameful thing. Mm. I know your heart. I want to know you. Yeah. And so we started having once a week saying Wednesday nights, we're going to mm-hmm. just have 
a check-in. How are you doing? Yep. And we we use this concept that someone had shared with us a long oh, yeah. way um, about something else even, but called microscopic honesty. And it was this idea of not just like baseline honesty, but deep to the like cellular level of honesty. I was already introspective mm-hmm. of why am I doing what I'm doing? That was, gave me, what's my motivation behind what I do? And t- so it took us another lo- layer lower. Definitely. Um, deeper um, of looking at not just the behavior, not just the timing, not just the patterns, but the motivation. Yep. And that's when I started putting together that, oh, I felt anxious before that. I was really depressed. I was really sad. Mm-hmm. Now I know it was hypo mm-hmm. or I was really anxious. So I was hyper. Mm-hmm. And so I started seeing those patterns of being bored, feeling like a failure. Yeah. And so I started we having those microscopic, honestly, conversations like this week was good or this week was bad, but I noticed that I was depressed. And the thing that's so fascinating about this conversation is um, I I have uh, another friend. Actually, it's the same friend, but she I remember her telling me once like that um, sin is is uh, universal, but it's also unique to the person. Mm. And so she, I remember she told me at one point in her life, she had to stop plucking her eyebrows. And I laughed hysterically because I'm like, that is so ridiculous. But she said for her in that season, in that time, it became an obsession and like something that was um, like a prideful vanity thing. Mm. And for her, even though that was a benign thing, for her, it wasn't. It was a benign thing for you. Right. And so what happened with you was like, you would then, you cannot heal from what you don't understand. Yeah. I really believe that. I do too. And so you had to understand on a deeper level the things that you were doing and why you were doing them. Mm-hmm. And so if I got a magazine in the mail that was just a basic home magazine and you opened it and looked through it, why did you do that? Yeah. And right now, if you were to do that, because newsflash, he is a he has experienced tremendous healing yeah. and he's a completely different person internally. Um, if you know, right now you were to do that, the motivation would be I was sitting here, my phone wasn't working, yeah. you know, or I was at the doctor's appointment, I had nothing to look at, and I looked through it. Yeah. That's why I did it. Yeah. But at that point, when you were still so vulnerable and still seeking that regulation, mm-hmm. the motivation wouldn't have been good. Yeah. And so that's where microscopic honesty was such a tool and a gift to you because it showed you things that you would have been like, gosh, it's just a magazine. What's wrong with that? It also slowed you, slowed me down. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when you're regulating yourself, your brain's not thinking, okay, you need to be regulated. I'm watching a, a video on YouTube that's completely benign and a suggested video comes up on the side. There's like a bloopers video or something like that, but there's a pretty girl in the front. Mm. When I was struggling... I'd be like, oh, I'm, I wonder what these bloopers are about. Right. But the motivation was really, there's a pretty girl in the front, and I'm hoping that there's more pretty girls yeah. in the video. Yeah. And so without being microscopically honest, I can continue lying to myself and saying it's about the bloopers. Yes. Clicking on an article about psychology, but there's a pretty girl in the front. Why did you click on that? What right. were you hoping for? What were you – and even if you're like, I'm not hoping to lust and have this fantasy – what was the motivation? Right. We'll talk more about healthy sexuality, which sure. I think is super a, helpful. A huge aspect of this. 
like we're not saying that he shouldn't be acknowledging that women are pretty or that I shouldn't think men are attractive. That's not at all. I shouldn't reality. become asexual. Right. Um, a healthy sexuality of, okay, they're pretty, now respect them. Right. They're not for my th- desire. Or even yeah. whether they're real life or on the computer, it's still, you can you can acknowledge that they're pretty. You're never That's never going to go away. But what is your motivation of now clicking on that video right, or exactly. that picture or that article? And so we'll... And we'll talk more about the difference between that healthy sexuality. Yeah, it'll be good. It's a, good it's a, it's a bunny cover. trail. Yeah. <laughs> but those, that was quite the bunny trail. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't even know where it started, but here we are. Um, oh, microscopic honesty. Yes. Yeah. And so those conversations were super helpful to shifting from this is my struggle and shame mm. and you're against me to yes. holding space for our story. Yeah. That we are in this together that your struggle affects me. Mm-hmm. And so I have to regulate myself so I can love you. Yeah. And you have to regulate yourself so you can love me. So it's not, we're not against each other. Right. We're not enemies trying to survive. We're partners trying to thrive. That's right. And we need each other to know how to do that, and to help each other do that. Yeah. And, and through those conversations, there was safety created mm-hmm. and we were able to have these conversations more on a partnership level. Yeah. Which gave me such safety, which in turn yeah. allowed me to be able to reg- saw- attune and, and uh, regulate and be there for you, which created yeah. more. I mean, it, the I vicious saw- cycle can work the other way and be totally helpful Yeah, if it's spun in the right direction. Right. And I started having conversations not to hide, but to bring regulation to you, mm. to bring safety to you. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to regulate myself and see that your safety was pri- was the goal, yeah. was primary. Yeah. And through those through those shifts, we created an intimacy within our marriage and a safety within our marriage that I could come to you for regulation. Yeah. Like I remember even. Um, towards the end, three, four, five years ago, or more, of saying, like, today, I'm feeling anxious. Mm. And within the anxiety, I have a draw to look at something. Mm. And that scares me. Yeah. But I want you to know that I haven't looked at anything, but I have that desire. And in those mom- in that moment, I just created this intimacy with you. Yeah. And also brought that temptation to the light. Yeah. lost the power. Yeah. And so later on that day, you're like, so babe, how are you feeling? No, I've been feeling great. Yeah. Or I'm still struggling. Yeah. And I didn't have to hide. Right. Because early on in my my um my story, I would go four or five days having that feeling. Yeah. And being afraid of that feeling and saying, this right. feeling is what I need to avoid. And I can't tell her that I have this feeling. Right. So I would just give into the feeling just so the o- OCD thoughts would stop would stop yeah and then after i gave in i'm like oh well, now i feel bad now i have to i feel guilty now i have to hide yeah and so there was a cyclical very much so cycle and but to be able to have that safety and saying this feeling's okay and i can invite her into this mm. and so that she can i can have safety and we can be in this i don't have to fight this anxiety alone i don't right. have to fight this temptation alone yeah completely it was a game changer it was a game changer 
in that uh, relationship, we were developed. We began earning the secure attachment that in turn allowed your heart to be freed from that need Yep, and to have a different way to regulate. That gave me tools, other tools to regulate in a healthy way. Yep. That I can come to my wife and say, I'm struggling or I'm, I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm nervous. You know, couldn't, that couldn't happen without that earning of that secure attachment of those years of conversations. Yeah. And another thing I say three, four or five, six years, I really encourage people not to keep track of time mm. because the time becomes the focus. Mm-hmm. And then when you slip up, choose wrong, you feel your brain feels like you have to start over. Yeah. That's square one. And it's not true. And it's not true. If you have six months of sobriety and you choose wrong, you still have that six months of sobriety right. of of what you've learned and earned, giving you uh, a momentum moving you forward. That's right. So I just encourage you guys that are struggling. Like, if it helps you, sure. But I I encourage people not to for that purpose, because the focus is intimacy, not sobriety. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's connection. It's it's relationship. It's community, and so. That's a little bit of our story. That is. We, that's we a lot. <laughs> we didn't know what we were going to share. No, we didn't have many notes this time. We just wanted to share from our heart. And so, and yeah. We, we just want, we're hoping to share what is helpful for you guys and beneficial. And so thank you for this opportunity to share with you guys a little bit of our story. We thought this would be the best way to see how we've held space yeah. and how we haven't held space. And I would say that if you're not talking about this conversation of your sexuality with your spouse, mm-hmm. um, you should. Yeah, You absolutely should. There's no couple that is exempt from the pressures and the, the cracks in, yeah. in our marriage where pain and... Um, dysregulation can cause us to seek other people to uh, help ease that other than our spouse Mm -hmm. and in some way or another, whether it's emotionally, whether it's through images, whether it's through relationships, no one is immune to it. And if you haven't had those conversations regularly, it's not too late to start. And I would just encourage you that if you really want the deepest, deepest level of intimacy with your spouse, you can't avoid this area. It's such oh. a crucial part of who we are and it intersects so deeply with our heart and our spirit that you can't just avoid it. Yeah. Um, so be brave and have those conversations, start those conversations. And thank you for holding our story with uh, kindness and yeah. sensitivity. And I just want to thank my husband for being so, so brave and vulnerable and sharing this issue that um, half of the population deals with on a regular basis. And yet we all pretend like it's not a thing. Um, I just applaud his incredible kindness, really, to give this part of his story to you um, out of love and out of a desire to help and to encourage you all to wholeness. So thanks, babe. Well, just encourage you guys go hold some space for your spouse. That's right. And we'll see you guys again next week. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.